Telecommunications giants say the United States is short on bandwidth to develop, you got it, 5G. The Defense Department has concerns about auctioning off certain parts of the broadband spectrum for 5G because it uses them for radar. Defense chiefs say they need the spectrum for national security. Now, a report due out next month on the section of bandwidth known as the Lower Three may finally break the stalemate. We get details from Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alex, tell us more about this report, who's doing it, and why it's so important. Well, Tom, to give you a little bit of background, the FCC auctions off bandwidth to industry, and that's how telecommunications companies get their bandwidth. So last March, they have an authorization from Congress to auction off this bandwidth, and that authorization expired. Members of Congress wanted to restart the auctions, but they don't want the FCC to be able to touch the part of the spectrum that the Defense Department uses. It's what's called the lower three. It's 3.1 gigahertz to 3.45 gigahertz. Some of my favorite flavors. (laughs) There you go. And it's currently controlled by the Defense Department. So Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota and Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii have sponsored legislation since March to extend those auctions, but their efforts have failed. And at a recent Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on the nomination of Air Force General C.Q. Brown to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Senator Rounds asked General Brown what he wanted to do with this bandwidth. That part of the spectrum is where we we have many of our capabilities across the uh, the joint force. And if we had to vacate that, um, we'd lose that capability and we'd have to figure out how now to regain that capability. And that will take time and cost money. And now it's not the time. To, to drop our, our national security. My recommendation is it, we, we should not vacate, and realizing we have to still get through uh, the study before we make any decisions. But if there will be an impact, and, and if confirmed, I'll, I'll bring uh, with the services you know, detailed information on the, uh, the challenges, how it might impact the joint force. So he's hanging on that study also. And uh, what's it all about? Everybody seems to be waiting for that study. It's a joint study conducted by the Defense Department and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration to determine the risks and the capabilities of that lower three broadband. And it, the the study itself was mandated by Congress, and it has to be in by September. So when Senator Rounds proposed extending the auctions last March, his idea was that they only be extended until September, at which point the report is due and everyone can decide what the liabilities of the of selling off that part of the broadband is. He was very clear that any authority, however, to continue the auctions had to exclude the lower three, at least until more information is gathered. As everyone's debating what to do with that lower three spectrum, industry and the FCC is saying, hey, we need this right now. China's getting ahead of us. The whole world has, is going to have better 5G than us. And we are, have this big shortage of broadband to continue developing 5G technology. So in addition to the report coming out, there's a World Radio Communications Conference coming up at the end of the year, and that's where everyone decides what their wireless policy is going to be. At a Center for Strategic and International Studies Forum on 5G, FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel talked about some of the challenges she faces with broadband policy. We are challenged in the United States because we are having a harder time identifying how to repurpose mid-band spectrum for new commercial use, and that's not the case in other countries. We're also challenged in the United States because for the first time in three decades, the FCC's Spectrum Auction Authority, which is a tool we use to distribute these airwaves, has lapsed and Congress is going to need to renew it. 
So this conference is going to be more challenging than ones that came before. And I'd like us to enter it from a position of strength. And that would mean supporting more mid-band spectrum with uh, United States plans in mind and also having that spectrum auction authority. I think if we can have both of those things, we'll have the wind at our backs. Yeah, so that message needs to travel down from CSIS to Capitol Hill, like give us that authority or restore it. And what does the FCC say about the whole security question around 5G and all of this bandwidth? She said it's really important to have national security. And I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she said everyone wants to make sure that our bandwidth is secure and that the Defense Department has what they need. But she also thinks that we can innovate, that compromises can be reached. And in the end, the country should be able to expand its commercial broadband and also keep the Pentagon happy. I think it's in our bones that national security comes first. I mean, it's the duty of every public servant to think about public safety. But I think this zero-sum game that we've managed to create is not yielding any benefits at this point. I think we have to recognize that we are incredibly creative when it comes to technology in this country. And if we can develop spectrum policy that supports that creativity, what we're going to do is build industries, technologies, services that are going to develop and support the civilian economy, but they're also going to help support our national security. Well, either way, industry likes a little bit of incentive to do that, you might say. And so what is industry saying about this, Alexandra? They're saying that they have a big shortage of broadband and they want to develop and they have customers to reach, but they can't do it unless they get more bandwidth and unless these auctions start again. They've also got a problem with the the Defense Department and their radars interfering with with industry's broadband. So they also want to make sure that as they expand, they don't have a whole lot of interference from the Defense Department radar systems. So that all needs to be solved. And they want to move forward, and they have some concerns about what's going to come out with this report and whether or not it's actually going to help them. Here's a Vice President of Global Security and Technology Policy at AT&T, Christopher Boyer. Just speaking for AT&T and I think for the whole industry, I mean, we, we certainly want to, don't want to see DOD lose critical capabilities to secure the country, right, from a national security standpoint. No one is advocating that um, they should lose functionality. The question is ultimately is how do we balance out the needs of DOD with the needs of the industry. And I think from an industry perspective, you know, we're seeing the wireless networks are continuing to grow. Everybody's using wireless. The, the capacity that's being put over the networks is growing infinitely. Uh, and so the need for more spectrum is, is, is pretty glaring. And so I guess my biggest concern with the report is that we can, um, and not to be overly pessimistic, but that we continue to kind of admire the problem, but don't actually move forward. I just wish I could find a more compelling case for all this wireless capability other than FaceTiming on the metro or playing ridiculous games because people are too bored to read a book. I mean, there's got to be some good industrial need for this that advances the society, too. But I guess that didn't come up in that particular situation, did it? Not really, but I would assume that if you're going to use cloud storage capabilities for everyone to use their own devices, which we've been talking about for, say, the Army, they're going to need to have pretty good capability to move that data back and forth. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's right. Cloud access is a big issue for the military, and of course, there are areas where there is no bandwidth at all, and so it's part of a complex of problems of access to data, whether you're in a rich environment or an austere environment and tough questions. Well, they managed to take the 7 gigahertz frequency away from churches and their wireless microphones, and that got replaced and works fine. 
So maybe there is hope for some uh, some technical innovation. Well, I think after that report comes out, maybe they can move forward with at least extending the auction so they can get something done out there. Yeah, the auctions are a amazing process, and the FCC has become good at them over the past 30 or so years that they've had that authority. So, And we know you'll be on top of what comes next. Can't wait to hear what happens with the report. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure is mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981 and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. 
and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's It's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, 
I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief, and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.